Hello everyone, welcome to our weekly Dhamma study practice, Dhamma session. We are moving to a weekly schedule, meaning our Wednesday sessions are canceled. So I'm going to start recording Dhammapada videos during the week instead, and I think once a week with the questions is enough. So welcome. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for tuning in and for watching these videos on our YouTube channel. Thank you because I want to see the world a better place. I think that's proper, that we should all incline ourselves towards making the world a better place, cultivating goodness, encouraging other people to cultivate goodness, encouraging and supporting and appreciating each other's goodness. These are all right things to do, just generally good and proper. So today's talk is on the three trainings. Sikha, the three Sikha. Tisika. The three trainings, if you want to find something very basic, provide a basic understanding of Buddhism, the three trainings provide this base framework for understanding what it is that the Buddha taught. The Buddha Sasana, the religion of the Buddha, is, is a training. This is how we should understand it. It's not to be framed as a belief system. It's not about culture or, or identity. It's not about identifying as Buddhist. Doesn't mean anything if you call yourself Buddhist. Doesn't help you. It generally hinders you if you identify as anything at all. So doesn't help you to identify unnecessarily. Buddhism is a training. In fact, it's three trainings or a three-part training. So meditation is a training. Often meditation is perceived as some sort of relief or, or respite a vacation of sorts, a way of getting away from our everyday. And in Buddhism, it's very—it's not—it's not that. In Buddhism, meditation is a training, and meditation we practice meditation because of our interest in training ourselves. And meditation plays a central part in that. But there are three aspects of our training. Three aspects are sila, samadhi, and panya. 
sila samadhi panyar, the tisika, the three sikhas. Sila means ethics or morality. Samadhi means concentration or focus. And panya means wisdom or understanding. And we know that they form the basis of the Buddha's teaching because they comprise the the summary of the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path is made up of three parts. Sila is right speech, right action, right livelihood. Samadhi is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And Panya is right view and right thought. The three trainings comprise the, the seven purifications as well. When you talk about the Visuddhimagga, path of purification. Sila Visuddhi is Sila, of course. Jitta Visuddhi is Samadhi. And the other five, from Ditti Visuddhi all the way to Jnana Dasana Visuddhi. These are panya, meaning the seven pure, the seven, the path of purification, is basically sila samadhi panya. Ethics, focus, wisdom, morality, concentration, wisdom. So something worth understanding. Something just worth knowing, you know. We, we we had our study group this morning, and sometimes it feels like we're just diving off the deep end, as the the suttas are not arranged in such a way as to provide a outline, like an A to Z course. It's not it's not like a textbook, chapter one, introduction. There's no introduction. In some ways, that's um, that's a good thing. It's proper because Buddhism isn't a ism so much. It's not about cultivating a belief system. It's again about training, and so rather than chapters and and textbooks, we have talks. We have instructions. We have encouragements. We have direct uh, teaching, you know, where the, where the Buddha would guide someone to enlightenment, guide someone to understanding. So it. If it seems discouraging, then it's hard to understand what is Buddhism and what is the framework of what the Buddha taught. In some ways, that's not a problem. That's not something we have to worry too much about. We have to get a sense of the training, the sense of the goal, the sense of what we're doing. And we have to get on that path, most importantly. 
So the, the framing it as the three trainings. See, we don't have to be able to slot everything in in the right place. We just have to get on the training. We don't have to be able to tell people what is Buddhism. They just understand it as a training and we, we, we begin to train. I mean, to say is it's not necessary to have a, a theoretical understanding of Buddhism so much as it is to have a direct understanding of reality to begin on the path of training to progress on the path of training so as with everything in in the buddha's teaching there is the mundane side and there is the super mundane side or the the ultimate side the the way of looking at things from a conventional sense and a way of looking at things from an ultimate sense so the three trainings are it's very important to to look at them through that lens of having two sides because we have to be able to go beyond the conventional. The trainings require an ultimate uh, application. Conventional application of the three trainings is good, is beneficial, but limited. So for example, with ethics, sila, a sila literally means something like behavior or character, maybe. But it refers to physical and verbal activity. It's the, the aspect that's related to our activities. So with morality, you have you have two sides. You have the conventional and you have the ultimate. And so our ordinary understanding of sila is that rules, rules, precepts, um, principles to live by. That's how we think of ethics and morality. Is it ethical to kill? No, it's not ethical to kill. It's not ethical to steal and so on. But a deeper look at ethics from a Buddhist perspective shows that actually killing and stealing aren't the problem. They aren't a problem at all because they refer to the act. The actual problem and the actual unethical quality is, is mental. And so, so we find that ethics has actually nothing intrinsically to do with our activities directly. It has to do with our engagement with our activities. It actually is an important, essential, sort of a basic part of our meditative practice. Our focus on 
bodily and physical activity, bodily and verbal activities. Focus on, on a pure interaction with them. So our practice of walking meditation and our practice of sitting meditation, we're very much focused on the body. Could say we're focused on speech as well. Focus mostly by not speaking, but you can also be mindful of your speech, what you're going to say. Our interactions with the physical realm, we take them as an object of meditation. We cultivate a restraint. We cultivate a, a, a vigilance. In the sense of not, not being paranoid, but being vigilant, being alert. When we walk, we walk carefully. When we speak, we speak conscientiously, deliberately, carefully, with, with attention. So when we walk, stepping right, stepping left, that's ethics. That's ethical walking, it's ethical behavior. And it sets the tone for all of our activities, for any sort of ethics. You can't kill, you can't steal if you're mindful of your actions. You just can't do it. It requires too much. It requires too much mental attachment, too much mental ambition, desire, passion. So true ethics involves every activity and every speech, everything we do. It's our character on the deepest level. It's really the base, the, the starting point of our practice. We begin with ethics. The Buddha said, Sile Patitaya, founded on Sila. Our practice is founded on Sila, on, on ethics. Well, precepts are good and, and and important, but they're they're not powerful enough. They're not strong enough to propel us towards samadhi, towards the second training. It has to go deeper than precepts. It has to become more more ultimate than that. With samadhi, we also have two types of samadhi, samadhi that is focused on concepts and samadhi that is focused on the ultimate reality. When we focus on a concept, it has the, the benefit of calming the mind because objects, concepts are stable. They're comfortable or even controllable controllable because they don't exist controllable because they they exist in our imagination controllable means let's say you you your concept is the buddha 
you can control what what your concept of the Buddha is. What you can't control is the reality behind that. What you can't control is your your uh, your experience of that concept. Meaning, sometimes you'll be focused on it. Sometimes you'll be distracted from it. You can't just force yourself to focus on it, to to be cognizant of it. But you can control by imagining, and you can say, no, this is what I imagine, this isn't what I imagine, and you can change how you imagine it, and so on. As it's all conceptual. The reality behind your control is very uncontrollable, it's unpredictable, it's a lot of factors involved. But concepts like that, concepts don't change until you change them. Realities change, so it's it's calming. It's powerful. It leads to all sorts of mental fortitude and peace and calm. It's just all around a very good thing and something appreciated by the Buddha and appreciated by anyone who undertakes meditation practice. It's just not. not enough it doesn't lead to wisdom understanding it doesn't change the way you look at the world not fundamentally because it has nothing to do with the underpinnings of the world the, the building blocks of reality when you focus on reality it's impermanent suffering non-self it's not very much fun it's quite un unpleasant at times it's unpleasant until you learn to let go of it until wisdom arises but focusing on that unpleasantness helps wisdom to arise it helps you see your clinging your your expectations your addictions so on the path Samadhi on the path refers to this focus on reality where you see the nature of things as being undesirable, not worthy of clinging. It's the focus on the on on the things that will provide wisdom and understanding. The things that we we have ignorance about or misconception of. We don't understand reality very well. Our training, our second training is in focusing on reality to understand it better, more clearly. So that all of our Habits, our, our habits based on misunderstanding are, are done away with. We cling to things, crave things, we get angry about things. It's all ridiculous. It's all nonsense. There's no wisdom behind anger. You could never say, oh, you were, you were, that was very wise of you that you got angry right there. You could never say, oh, that's, what, what depth of wisdom that you cling to that thing, no? 
I'd never say that. I could never have such a thing. We may not realize it when we when we think of wisdom, but it has everything to do with with the freedom from clinging, freedom from uh, aversion, and so on. So, so the third training, the third training wisdom, a wisdom is again of two kinds. We have the conventional conceptual wisdom. And this is a, again, a double-edged sword. Conventional wisdom is useful and important, but it's so It's uh, so misleading, I guess. We 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 be, we deceive ourselves based on our knowledge. It can be intoxicating. The Buddha's teaching can be intoxicating. It's so powerful. It's so beautiful. And the teaching isn't intoxicating. That's wrong to say, but. Because it's so powerful, we become intoxicated by the power of it. It's easy to become proud because of how great the Buddha's teaching is. You become proud of the greatness. It's interesting. If the Buddha's teaching was not so good, we might not get so proud of it. Wouldn't have anything to be proud of. But again, it's because of the way we look at things. We see things as concepts. So when we hear about wisdom, we try to conceive of it. We find try to find all the concepts involved with it, the views, the beliefs, the principles. You have to be very, very clear. This is hard to see, hard to understand. Wisdom in Buddhism is not principles, concepts, theories, ideas. Wisdom in Buddhism is seeing clearly. Wisdom in Buddhism is our perception of things, our clarity. It's a very different thing, right? It's a very different thing from being uh, knowledgeable about Buddhist theory. Or, or even being able to explain Buddhist theory. It's quite possible that to not be a very good meditator and still be able to explain it quite well. This is not wisdom. It's, it's useful, it's beneficial, but it's also dangerous. It's dangerous if we don't practice it. It's dangerous, I mean, because it leads to pride and conceit and negligence. It's easy to become negligent when you know something very well, when you, when you, if, when you, uh, when you possess the knowledge, right? I think, 
I know the Buddha's teaching. I possess this knowledge. And the Buddha, to, to get this point across, the Buddha likened it to a, a cow herd, someone who herds cows, but they herd the cows of others. They get paid to do it. He said, such a person is like a cow herd. They never get the milk from the cows or the butter or the ghee. They just get money. They don't actually get the essence. They don't actually own the cows. So wisdom is the change in your perception of things. It's the understanding. It's hard even to talk about because of how we use these words in, in ordinary discourse outside of Buddhism. But understanding is a, an appreciation or a familiarity or a an, an enlightenment. Those are the three trainings. Sila, Samadhi, and Banya. If you want to understand the basics of Buddhism, that's where you should start. Really is where you should end. It's why we hear about the Eightfold Noble Path as being so basic to Buddhism, because it really is the core, the essence. One of the great things about the Buddha's teaching is he started with these three trainings and branched out, and you can branch out. If you want to talk about wisdom, oh, you can go into depth. There's the 16 stages of knowledge, the five purifications. There are many ways to talk about wisdom. Samadhi, you want to talk about the different types of samadhi. Sila, you want to talk about there are... If you read the Visuddhimagga, just skim through it, you'll see how in-depth. The Visuddhimagga is basically Sila, Samadhi, and Banya, but it's a very big book that goes into very much detail about all three of these trainings. You can get an appreciation of how uh, Buddhism is like a, a branching teaching. It's a kaleidoscope or a fractal where you, you zoom in on one of these trainings and it branches out into many other things. And everything loops back and everything connects. And it's much more, again, a, it's not about getting a picture. You you don't have to make an infographic about Buddhism, like what leads here. And it's not about flowcharts or anything like that or lists. It's about living it. It's about practicing it. And so you can go with it, move from one thing to another. You know, the three trainings move to the exploration of wisdom as a means of de deepening your practice. So our study should reflect our practice in this way. It should be an incorporation or, or a an engagement. You learn about something intellectually, you also take it as a practice. Practice it as you learn. So as we sit here talking, or I am doing the talking, you have an opportunity to practice as well. We're here together. We have this connection with so many other people. Just look. We have people in the chat. We have people not chatting. All here with a very similar 
inclination. We're in a we're in a community together. What an opportunity for us to not be distracted by worldly affairs. Take this opportunity to cultivate good things. Speaking of the chat, speaking of good things, I think we have some questions. I'm going to shift into the question and answer period. Question and answers begins now. I will pin Olivia's comment. So the chat is now only open to questions, preferably related to meditation practice. Our hope is to field questions that need answers, not questions that are on curiosity or because you, you thought it up, you heard that this was about questions, so you tried to find a question to ask. Don't go looking for questions to ask. If you don't have questions, don't be discouraged. That's generally a good thing. Once you have no questions, it means you're 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 either way off track or you're on track. Ask questions if you're not sure whether you're on track. And hopefully we can get you on track. Okay, let's begin. Regarding tension in the stomach, I feel like I usually catch tension. Sometimes I feel the disliking and only rarely do I notice the original craving. Sometimes this leads to feeling that I'm mislabeling, worrying about mislabeling, which I note. But is it correct, to any extent, to search for craving or anything else in meditation? No, it is not. It's never good to search. We're trying to see clearly our reality, and our reality is the present moment. There's always going to be something. present moment doesn't stop. So there will always be that which is present. Now, of course, of course, it changes. It's just a matter of figuring out and, and perceiving what is actually there. What, which, which is, it maybe sounds more complicated than it is. It's not about searching. It's right there. It's here. It's right here. What, what's happening right here and now? It's more about stopping yourself from doing things like searching. There are many activities like searching, going to the past, going to the future, interpreting, investigating, none of that. The only investigating we should be doing is investigating what's actually here, what we're overlooking generally, what, what we're going beyond, what we're missing. So all of what you're doing sounds fine, except for the uh, the belief, whatever, if there were a belief, which is why you asked this question, the belief that you should be searching. So that belief will lead, of course, to distraction. And that's why, you know, you shouldn't go searching. Just take what's there. You're doing fine. The terms pleasure and liking seem like synonyms such as when eating good food or seeing or touching something beautiful. Could you help in explaining the differences in the experiences? Well, they often go together, so that's why it sometimes seems like they're the same thing. But they don't always go together. For example, when you are kind to someone, 
there's a, there can be pleasure involved with that. I mean, it's hard because in English we use these words very interchangeably, but that's because we are not very uh, wise and our language has not evolved out of wisdom by any means. Our language has generally evolved out of ignorance. And so the way we use words is not proper. The Buddha had, even even in, in Pali, he had to redefine words and use words in very specific ways and really change the language as a result of his usage. So we have to, to some extent, change the language and, and be clear about the words that we use, like the word mindfulness. We've, we've co-opted the word. And now, I think it's now more often used in the way we use it, which is not what it actually used to mean. So pleasure, um, we would use to describe the actual feeling of, of, a, of a have happiness, of, of a positive, of a pleasant feeling without the actual liking, which is a separate thing. And you can have a pleasurable feeling, a happy feeling when you do good things, for example, without any craving for it. So it's like when, when you think of something you want, there can be a pleasure, there, a happiness there as well. But that happiness is associated with liking and wanting. That's just the nature of things. This is actually a part of the Abhidhamma. You can study it. And it actually is, this was observed, that yes, there are two different kinds of pleasure. It, it, that Which is all just theoretical and doesn't really matter. If it feels like pleasure, you just say pleasure or, or happy. And if it feels like liking, just say liking. Because we're not trying to judge good or bad. We're just trying to see more clearly. And whatever's actually there, you'll see that. And that's all that's important. So being able to differentiate intellectually is not really important. It's not that important. I am not very clear about the instruction. Note that thing until it ends. How do we identify when it ends? Well, that takes training. I mean, that's part of what we're trying to see is that everything ends. I'm not quite clear on the confusion. Say pain, for example. Does pain last forever or does it sometimes go away? And you may not realize that it does in the beginning, but that's part of what we're trying to see. You'll start to see it goes away. Uh, thoughts, for example, when you say thinking, they're already gone. So they've gone, but stop noting. You really only have to say thinking once usually or twice or something. You might repeat it if your mind keeps trying to think it because it wants to think it. With like wanting or disliking, that might stay for a bit, but eventually it goes. Worry, I mean, they, they tend to go away quite quickly. But they do go away. They, they, there, go. When we say thinking, when we are thinking during meditation, isn't that also a thought? It is. Yes. We're not trying to stop thinking, so there's not a problem there. We're trying to clear, create clarity of thought. So when we say thinking, we're we're trying we're trying to evoke a clarity of mind with our thought. So our ordinary thought is going to be something like, 
this is good, this is bad, I'm thinking too much, this is a problem, and so on. But when you say thinking, you're changing that. You're training yourself to see thinking just as thinking, and that teaches you a more objective way of looking at things, because it is, it's true. Thinking is thinking. Thinking is not a problem. That's all just your interpretation. It's not bad, it's not good, it's not me, it's not mine. It is thinking, and so it's proper to create that kind of thought and to direct your mind in that way. Meditation is a direction, again, training, so it involves direction of the mind, and that we use our thoughts to do that. That's what a mantra is. A mantra is a thought. It's an artificial, it's an artifice, it's an artificial means of cultivating natural states. Meditation is always going to be an artifice, artificial. So it is injecting something as a means of training the mind in some way or other. Our way just happens to be the best way, undeniably, because it's truth. Thinking is thinking. Pain is pain. You're not abstracting it in any way. It is what it is. That's why it's so powerful. That's why mindfulness is so powerful. I have problems with tiredness and no will or motivation, which sometimes makes it hard to meditate. What can I do about this? Well, look at it a little differently. Tiredness is not a problem. It's tiredness, right? If you have the perception of it as a problem, that's where your problems begin. It becomes depressing and, and discouraging. But if tiredness is just tiredness, then, well, you can meditate on that. You'd say tired, tired. Now, as for things making it hard to meditate, meditation is hard. Unless you're really special, it's going to be really hard. Don't be discouraged by that. There's, no, there's nothing that says, and this is a general principle of life, there's nothing that says that something that's hard is bad. There's nothing that says that when something is hard, that's a bad sign. Right? This is a, a sort of a misperception we have. Um, when the going gets tough, we run away. We, we get discouraged. That's why this saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It's a, it's a sign of someone who is going to succeed when they don't get discouraged by challenge, by difficulty. That's a quality we should aim to cultivate. Just our perception. Difficult is not a reason to get discouraged. It's not a sign that there's a problem. It's not a sign that there's a problem. I am practicing meditation a lot, but I just can't stop my thoughts constantly firing everywhere due to ADHD. Do you have advice to help with this? You can't stop your thoughts constantly firing is not because of ADHD. This is, this is a, it's okay. You're not, there's nothing wrong with you per se. There's, there's something wrong with all of us. Don't be, just don't be discouraged by it. Um, you can't stop your thoughts because that's the nature of your thoughts. Thoughts are, are, are uncontrollable. You seeing that is actually a good thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sign of progress. It's a, a, an expected observation along the path. So 
See, it would be wrong to be discouraged by that and try to move elsewhere, try to do something else to get away from that. That's actually where you should investigate. That's a, an entry point for you to start to understand what's going on. We look at thoughts and, and, and distractions like that as a problem. Now, it's not so much whether they are or aren't a problem. It's our perception of them. If you perceive something, right? It, it, again, this gets back to wisdom. Wisdom isn't, isn't about identifying what is a problem and what isn't. It's about the way you perceive things, the way you engage with things. If your engagement is, this is a problem, that's a problem, that engagement, that state of mind is problematic, it's harmful. When you, folk, when you, when you think, the proper thing is to recognize it as a thought. When you're distracted, the proper thing is to appreciate this as distraction, to correctly identify it, because that state of mind, that interaction is beneficial. It focuses your mind. That's That way of looking at things does not encourage distraction, does not encourage a lack of attention and so on. I mean, it is attentive. So again, just like the last person, don't be discouraged when it's difficult. You can't stop. Great. You've started to see the truth of reality, something that will help you let go and stop trying to fix. So when we ask for advice to help, that's part of the mind that wants to fix things. Something's wrong. I have to fix it. Something's wrong with me. I identify with it, you see. Well, it becomes very problematic when it's our problem. It's me, it's mine. All of that you have to eventually discard. You have to just see things as they are because that way of looking at things cultivates all these good things that we want, the focus, the calm, the concentration, the peace. Oh, the peace, if only I could get away from my mind. All this thinking and distraction and anxiety and restlessness and depression and fear and so on and so on. All of that comes not from escaping all those things, but from coming to face them, to coming to terms with them, cultivating a better perspective towards them. Am I correct in understanding that one should note about once a second? Currently I am noting about once every two to three seconds. Should I try to note more frequently, or will this come naturally? Well, if it feels like there's, it's a bit sluggish, you should note that. But there's certainly no rule that it has to be once per second. It's just a, it was just a sort of a basic guide of one of our, the Mahasi Sayada, one of our core teachers. He suggested that, and that seems reasonable. Two to three seconds, you might start to feel like you're kind of slacking off. If it feels like that to you, then then you should note that and and you know sort of cease the slacking off, but if it just feels you know, nat natural, normal, ordinary, then, then do that. What we don't want to fall into is some kind of uh, artificial addition, like intentionally, like suppose you enjoy going slower, for example, you get caught up in that, that, that can cultivate bad states of mind, the harmful, un un unbeneficial states. So there really should be nothing remarkable about your practice at all. That's, that's sort of a good sign where you're not doing things a certain way. You're just doing it the most ordinary, simple way. And that once per second is pretty accurate.
as to what's generally ordinary. Whenever I put effort into my meditation, I lose the will to continue with work and family life. And when I focus on work and family, my meditation practice takes a back seat. How do I find a balance? Mm -hmm. Common question, important question. There is no balance, really. Work and family life. So, so that's discouraging that I can't give you an answer, but I can. But you shouldn't be looking for a balance. You have to acknowledge that they're on two different realms, two different planes. Family and work life, or work and family life, are not essential. They're not really important. Your family is not really important. Your family, why? Because your family is not really your family. It's just convention. It's temporary. It's very ephemeral. It's, 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 it's a blip in your, your life history, in your, your journey. No matter what you believe, life is very short. And so to say this is my family is kind of inconsequential. Something we build up, it's useful for, cult for, for forming society, for forming uh, relationships and supporting each other for survival, uh, even for security and, and stability and so on. But none of that's real, none of that's essential. And so eventually it becomes meaning, it, it, you start to see it as meaningless, and it is meaningless. There's nothing wrong with what you're seeing. It's just you have to change the way you look at these things. Work and family life are, are, are essential. They're a part of your life. They're, sorry, they're not as, they're, they're essential from a conventional perspective, but they're not essential in an ultimate sense. So they're things you, you have to do. Um, Conventionally, you do them as a matter of course. You engage with your family, you engage in work, you, you work. Um, but you do it as a matter of course, not, not where you put your attention. So it should it always takes a back seat in your heart in the sense of it not being so consequential or important anymore. But because of the nature of what is essential, you can engage with work and family life uh, as before, for the most part, because you just engage with it uh, mindfully, you know, with, with a mind that is focused on the essential. Meaning, when you work, you work mindfully, you work with attention, you work focused on the ultimate reality of the situation. When you're engaged in family life, you again do it mindfully. It's not to say that that's not without challenges, of course. You're not going to have as much ambition, so your work will suffer as a result. You won't get promotions and so on necessarily. So you'll start to simplify, but that's not a bad thing. You do your work and you do what you can. And if people complain, you are patient with that. People will complain because they expect you to be ambitious and craving and passionate and so on, which is all just a big part of the problem in the world. Your family as well, they expect you to be funny and entertaining and, and cling to them, care for them, love them. There's expectations. And so they'll get upset as well. You have to be ready for that possibility tend to be associated with work and family life people who are very much clingy and that's not something we can 
That's not something we can uh, fix. It's broken, and you'll have to be ready for that. That doesn't make it wrong. Clinging is wrong, and passion, ambition, all these things, they're, they're, they're observably wrong. You, you can see for yourself, and that's what you start to see through the meditation. It's quite obvious how wrong, and they're wrong these are, and they're wrong because they don't lead to happiness. They don't lead to peace. They lead to stress. They don't lead to things that people who engage in them want. We're passionate because we think it brings us happiness. We're ambitious. We're clingy. It only leads to greater stress and suffering. Sometimes I note trying where wanting might be accurate. Should I note one over the other, or is the word I choose not so important? Well, the more accurate, the better, but you'll get better at that. So if, if wanting would be more, you don't have to worry about what might be more accurate. Just start to see what's more accurate. If, it, if you perceive it as trying, don't worry about it being the wrong noting. So yeah, to that extent, it's not so important. It's not something you should worry about. And if you do worry, you should not worry. Worried. What should I do if I fall asleep during meditation? It's kind of a funny question because you're asleep. What can you do? I don't know. You can wake yourself up. Probably not. Once you wake up, well, it's not an issue anymore. It's in the past. So I guess my answer would be don't live in the past. When you're asleep, you're asleep. Once you've woken up, well, there's no issue anymore. You're not sleeping anymore. Okay, I guess more generally... You can be aware of falling of your yourself being drowsy, and you can get up and do walking instead, or, or succumb to it and lie down as a, with the thought that when I wake up I'll start again and try again that sort of thing. But it's not really something to be concerned with. It's something you might get upset about, and you should note that. How do I cope with suffering? Is that possible? That's a very general question. The answer is generally yes. And that's a big part of what we do, try to cope with it. I would recommend if you're interested to read our booklet on how to meditate, maybe sign up for an at-home course. I think that might be the sort of thing that would help you in this case. There are links in the description. It's all free. Not trying to make money off any of this. I always worry about what others think of me. How do I stop seeking other people's approval? Sorry, did I, I was I muted there? I think I was muted Perhaps there. So. Um, same answer as before. Read the booklet and uh, try to do an adult meditation course. That should help you with those issues, worry and seeking craving for approval.
Every time my friend starts meditating, she starts to cry. Why would this happen? Well, it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a sort of a textbook. I was going to say, it's not a very common, not everyone, but it's it's unsurprising. It's, it's a well-documented phenomenon. Usually has nothing to do with sadness. Now, of course, she might be remembering sad things. I assume that that's not the case unless you haven't asked her about it. She might be remembering bad things when she meditates and that makes her cry that certainly happens but it's also it also happens assuming you've talked to her and she doesn't she doesn't know why she's crying either if that's the case then it's just a rap it's what we call rapture uh, not the christian sort of rapture but it's the same idea where you get enraptured the mind gets um kind of ecstatic and there's lots of physical results to that crying i mean it's not crying it's tears uh, I guess you could say it's crying, but it's not sad. It's actually quite pleasurable. Crying is a physical activity that, that is actually pleasurable. I think that's why we cry, because it releases certain chemicals that calm us and, and bring pleasure. That's why children cry when they get hurt. It actually makes them feel better. So, I mean, it's just something she should note. It's not something to be worried about. The real problem is when, because it's pleasurable, you get in a feedback loop where you get, you encourage it, you instigate it. So you have to be vigilant with those sorts of things to be mindful about them so you don't get stuck on them, making, you know, in, initiating them, triggering them again and again because of how pleasurable they are. I often don't want to meditate if I try to schedule it. If I don't schedule meditation, I find I'm able to meditate longer and more frequently. Is this correct practice? Not really. You should, because you're avoiding some issue there, you should try to figure out why it is that you don't want to meditate. You know, not wanting to meditate is not something you should avoid, it's something you should address. You should be mindful, you should meditate on that the disliking, the aversion, and so on. The point being that there's really no... Um, th there should be no limitations on your meditation such that I have to do it this way or I can't meditate, right? Which is basically what's going on here. If that's the case in any way, in any form, then, then that should be something that's addressed so that you can meditate anywhere at any time. So it's a part of being objective and, and gaining this enlightened outlook on life. When returning to the stomach, if I happen to be on the out-breath, can I note the falling, or should I wait until the rising? Wait until the rising. I often feel like I'm either discarding notings too quickly or noting them after they're gone, and it seems inefficient. Do you have any advice for lessening this? No, that's not a problem. That's part of the process. Don't worry about that. You're going to sometimes see, catch things too late. Um, I don't know about discarding notings too quickly. I don't quite know what you mean there, but... 
try to note things until they go away, but yeah, try have a, have as a general general principle that you're going to try to note things until they go away, unless they last for a long time, and then you can ignore them, but stay with them for a while. What is the sign to know that my mind is focused? I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, if you if you if you're waiting to know, then you're not actually meditating, right? So don't don't be worried about that. That's kind of focusing on results. If you, anytime you do that, well, you're not going to focus because you're too concerned with are you whether you are focused. See. Can certain foods lower my awareness and affect my meditation? Is there any regulation I need to follow, or is it fine to have any food? It's fine to have any food. I mean, within reason, you should be somewhat mindful of food as being a medicine, and, and uh, the body will make, you know, sluggish body will, will make it challenge, more challenging to meditate. It's not really an issue in vipassana practice. It's more of an issue in samatha practice when you're when you're looking for tranquility. There's even traditions that say you shouldn't eat garlic or ginger or onions or uh, pungent herbs of that sort. But in vipassana, it's, that's not really an issue. I would say try and eat healthy for lots of reasons because it's just going to make your practice more smooth. But it's not something you should obsess over by any means. Never obsess over it. Food is not... Food is important in another sense. Food is important because it's something we cling to, we crave for. Even people who like healthy food crave it very much and obsess over their food very much. And that's a problem. That obsession, like any obsession, is a problem. So how we should observe food, we should be very careful about our food, but not in terms of what we eat, but in terms of how we approach the eating not the eating, the preparing, all of the obsession and addiction that goes into that. We should be vigilant about observing and, and tranquilizing that, neutralizing that. Why is it so hard for me to find peace while doing the practice? I find myself bored and impatient, and I do not see this going anywhere other than what I am currently experiencing. What should I do? You're doing fine. That sounds like you're starting to see how the mind works. You you can't control your mind. This this trying to find peace. Why is it so hard? It's because it's not yours. It's not under your control. It's not really even the point of the practice. And not directly. So you're trying to find peace when you do the practice is just getting in your way. It's what leads to discouragement and impatience and so on. And so your your goal really is to try and understand the patience and impatience and the, the boredom because they're the problem. They're not the the symptom of the problem. They are the problem. So we think we think, oh, I'm not at peace, and as a result of that problem of not being at peace, I get bored and, and impatient. No, it's the other way around. You're never going to find peace until you've learn to overcome the boredom and the impatience. Boredom and impatience are in improper observation. They're unwholesome states of mind. Try and see them 
with wholesome states of mind. When you're bored, say to yourself, bored, bored, you're replacing that boredom with a wholesome state of clarity. When you're impatient, say impatient, impatient, and you're replacing it with a new, more pure state. Peace will come. Peace is not something you have to worry about. It's like you do your work, you'll get paid. You don't have to question whether you're going to get paid or keep checking your bank account every five minutes to see if they've deposited your paycheck. You do your work and you'll get paid. It's, it's better than that because you never know. Your employer might stiff you out of money, but meditation will never stiff you because it's ultimate reality. There's no God that's going to get in the way of you gaining from meditation practice. There's nothing, the Buddha, using the Buddha's words, there's no Brahma or God or angel or being who can stop you from the Dhamma, can stop the Dhamma from arising. So never have to question results. Bhante, we've come to the hour. There are three questions left in the first tier. Do you have the time to answer? I've got time. Great. Are there any benefits of going back to the previous stages of walking and sitting techniques used in the early stages of the at-home meditation course? Yes, we, we go back to them. We, we go through them. For If you do the course, the intensive, the intensive course, you'll go back over them again anyway. So you can go through them again as a progression. Really, it's not, because it's not organized once you're doing it on your own, you can stay at the highest step. You can go back down and work your way up. Try and get a, um, a sort of a stable practice going. And you can work on a progression or stay at the top or whatever, really, really based on your focus. If you're feeling focused, you can increase, increase. If you're not feeling very focused, well, I'll start over at the beginning. We usually go back and start at the third walking step once we've gone through them all. I agree with you on family, but they have sacrificed and devoted their whole life towards us. Won't it create bad karma if we don't keep them happy? Karma is action. So action action in Buddhism is determined by our, our volition, our, our intentions in our mind. Do you intend to hurt someone? If you do, if you intend to be cruel, that's a problem. If you don't intend to be cruel, well, people are never going to be satisfied no matter what you do. I mean, not everyone is going to be satisfied no matter what you do. I mean, there are many cases where people take up meditation and their family is very happy for them, appreciative, maybe sad because they miss the person when they can't see them, but but understanding and appreciative. The people I deal with, of course, it's not always like that because we are the we are the what do you call we we're, we're the um, uh, the outlying areas we are the border the border people we're not the we're not the civilized we're not buddhist civilization most of us aren't buddhist we weren't born buddhist and so we have a lot of uh, a lot of things to deal with family who who is very angry at us for becoming buddhist who who thinks we're following evil things and all even it's get very can get very tense
there's there's no helping that i mean when someone has wrong view it's wrong and appeasing them is not good right so the question is a bit you know you have to you have to be clear that it doesn't help people to encourage their or support their clinging so keeping people happy is not actually a thing they're going to be unhappy as long as they cling it's going to always lead to their detriment you supporting them in that is not a good thing just because it quote unquote keeps them happy it's like saying well if someone's addicted to drugs shouldn't i keep giving them drugs to keep them happy wouldn't it be bad karma to take their drugs away i mean maybe if you actually take their drugs away but if you stop giving them drugs and refuse to give them drugs um that there's nothing wrong with that that's actually a positive thing because they might get very very angry but they they've been forced to confront they they've they've been removed they've uh, had an enabler removed right you enable them this is a term that people use with addiction you're an enabler so that's basically what you're talking about so people have sacrificed and devoted their whole life to you to you well what should you do about that you should be grateful and helpful and supportive of them of course that's just a matter of course that's an acknowledgement but that has nothing to do with family or relationships gratitude is an important quality um but when when people want you to be a certain way when they when they uh cling to you you're just talking about enabling that clinging enabling that craving enabling that addiction so 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 there are things and and practically there are many things that you should and and will do to to cultivate happiness for your family to make to to bring happiness to your family by by being kind to them and compassionate to them and and supportive of them all of that is important and so i say you know as a matter of course you do your duties but as soon as you start clinging to it worrying about it obsessing over it you don't do anything good or when you support their obsession or their clinging that's where the problems come it really takes wisdom to be able to discern and really navigate the minefield of samsara figure out where are the mines where are the explosions not 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 to worry or avoid them but to 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 navigate them to say no no this is clinging I, that's not right so i'm not going to encourage their clinging or cling myself but uh this is this person needing help i'm going to help them i would like to take the at home meditation course for a second time is this appropriate? I don't offer it a second time. I don't think that is appropriate. Um, I think at that point you've gained uh, what you need and the next challenge is to tough up. I don't know what I mean, I just want to say something kind of crude. What, what the expression is, you know, uh, toughen up, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. I don't know what the saying is, but so you have to take the next challenge and that is to do it on your own i think that's fair to say that looking for more support is just a, it's kind of a sign of you know you, you need to be kicked out of the nest is that the expression 
what a horrible thing. Um, training wheels, you have to take the training wheels off and you might fall and bruise yourself, but using training wheels forever isn't going to help you. That's, I think, that's my perception. I mean, yes, it would be beneficial, but no, I don't think it's appropriate. I think you have to do something more beneficial and that's be your own refuge. Of course, ultimately move on to take an intensive course. That's the next real step is to find a way to take an intensive course, which of course is hard right now because of the new reality of life, but we'll see how the future looks. Hopefully there's a way to allow for, for that. That's the end of our tier one questions, Monte. Thank you. Okay, thank you all. Good, good group. Thank you all for your help, our moderators and our uh, Chris. Behind the scenes, we have Ulu and Jim. We have, of course, Olivia's in the chat, very active, I see. So very supportive. So thank you all, and thank you all for coming, for your great questions, and for your interest in the Dhamma. I appreciate you, Sadhu. May we all be free from suffering and find peace and happiness. Sadhu. <laughs>